For I know the plans I have for you. Do I even need to finish it? We're quite familiar with Jeremiah 29, 11. And before you even finish searching it on Amazon, if you just get to Jerem, you can stop right there. It recommends clarifying if you're wanting to search in books or home and kitchen. So pretty interesting and revealing. But if you don't clarify, you just press enter, Jeremiah 29, 11. The following items come up. A plaque, a baby crib, a blanket, a keychain, a coffee mug, a bookmark, a wall decal, a water bottle. The list goes on and on. We really like Jeremiah 29, 11. But I wonder if by taking it out of Jeremiah and putting it on a coffee mug, removed from both its immediate context and canonical context, if we have missed its full meaning. And can it be, can we at least be open to the possibility that placed back in its context, permeated through the rest of the New Testament, its meaning is much clearer, much grander, and much richer? Will you stand with me as we read Jeremiah chapter 29, verses 10 through 14. Jeremiah chapter 29, verses 10 through 14. For thus says the Lord, When seventy years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you, And I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil. To give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord. And I will restore your fortunes And gather from you all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. Israel is in exile, kicked out of their homeland under the rule of the Babylonians. And exile raised the greatest sort of existential questions. Had God forgotten his people? Had he not been powerful enough to overcome Babylon. Ancient Israel had been the recipients of God's presence. They had heard and seen God do marvelous, powerful miracles. He had overthrown kingdoms and empires, raised up his own in Israel with David and Solomon, resided by his glory in the temple, all of which seemed like a recipe for smooth sailing onward. Except sin didn't get that memo. And like all of humanity, its infection in ancient Israel produced disobedience and a failure in vocation. A failure to be the people God had called them to be. This was the people God had elected to be His solution to the creation-corroding effects of sin. To be a light to the nations. If you go back to the calling of Abraham, to be those in whom all the families of the earth shall be blessed. The solution had become part of the problem, which necessarily 
led them to being taken over by the Babylonians and sent into exile. Yet, ever steadfast, ever faithful, God does not wash his hands of it all. In exile, from God, through the prophets, to his people, there is this refrain that though they are indeed in exile, there is coming a time where God will renew them, will restore his people, forgive them of their sins, and reconstitute the kingdom of God. Which brings us to our passage. Jeremiah is relaying this hopeful word of the Lord to those in exile, and it's a bit of, I got good news and I got bad news. Bad news, though all things considered not altogether bad, is don't keep your luggage, uh, don't keep your luggage packed to return home. He says earlier in verse 4, um, build houses, live in them, plant gardens, marry, have children, seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. That's the bad news. Good news, after 70 years are completed, verse 10, I will visit you, I will fulfill to you my promise, and bring you back to this place, and then our famous verse. For I know the plans I have for you. Now remember, numbers oftentimes had symbolic meaning for Israel, seven being a sign of completion. You can think, think creation in that sense. And thus, 70 likely meant a lifetime. You're going to be here for a lifetime. And afterwards would come God's work of restoration. But here's where it gets interesting. It would have been easy, and indeed was the case for many, to think that when God restored his people in the way Jeremiah is describing, it would look similar, if not exactly, how it had been in the good old days of King David and King Solomon, of a powerful empire with a rebuilt temple, with a king ruling superior to other nations, certainly not in their servitude as they currently were. They would be in charge. Yet, later, Cyrus and the Persians come in, they take over the Babylonians, they let the Israelites back into Jerusalem, and when the foundation is laid for the new temple in the book of Ezra, those that had been alive to know the first temple began weeping, because it was not like the former. And that air of not quite right extends all the way into the New Testament in the first century. There's no evidence of the glory of the Lord, which had led Israel in the wilderness. It had dwelled in the tabernacle and the temple, and it had departed before the exile. There's no evidence of that glory ever returning to the temple. And so when we enter the world of the New Testament in the first century, yes, the temple is there. Herod's even made it bigger. The religious order is intact. Some would say bureaucracy. But it is all at the pleasure of Rome. Caesar is emperor. He's the king. And if ever Israel was confused about that fact, one swift action would remind them. So, though some things were the same as it had been under King David and King Solomon, we've got our temple, we're allowed back in our home, we've got our religious order. However, there was no way to reconcile that exile had really ended if a foreign power was still ruling, no matter what sort of privileges they may have had in Jerusalem. 
So the prophetic hope of Jeremiah, and you can add to that Isaiah, Ezekiel, was for many still to come. And again, what they were waiting on was a change in status, a change in power, a change in who was in charge. All things very circumstantial. But then there's this baby who's born in Bethlehem. And he prompts strange responses from people. Magi, men of wisdom, honor him. Herod, the power structures are threatened by him. Shepherds, the lowly, are given a divine message of hope in him. And he grows in wisdom and stature, teaching as a young boy. He's prompting amazement and learning from those who heard him. And around 30 years later, he calls 12 disciples, a pretty peculiar number, and begins making peculiar announcements for repentance, that the kingdom of heaven was at hand, that prophecy in Isaiah of one who would bring good news to all, rich, poor, free, captive, able, disabled, powerful, powerless, that it was fulfilled in their hearing. And later on in his ministry, he identifies himself with one of the most loaded terms in the Old Testament, that of the Messiah. But that's where the rub was. Because this man from nowhere, Jesus from Nazareth, you remember his own disciples, what good comes out of Nazareth? Yes, he was performing unexplainable miracles. Yes, he was teaching with an authority different from other teachers of the day. He was speaking of God as Father. He even had the gall to identify with God. He was proclaiming the authority to forgive. But he didn't seem the least bit interested in overthrowing the Romans. He wasn't recognized as some powerful elite. He wasn't spending his time with the people that mattered. He wasn't garnering the support and coalescing all the zealots to go lead a coup. In fact, he wouldn't quit bringing up that the Messiah must suffer and die and that his followers must take up their cross. This isn't the Messiah? Where's the blessings? Where's the prosperity? That's what Jeremiah said, right? Plans for you to prosper. Where's that? Where's the future and the hope? Which, of course, meant circumstantial favor, which meant political and cultural power. This isn't the Messiah? Is it any wonder that John, in his breathtaking prologue, says, He, Jesus, was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Or Luke tells us in chapter 19, upon arriving at Jerusalem, Jesus weeps, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. And later on he says, because you did not know the time of your visitation. Jeremiah 29.11 was right in their midst, incarnate. And they completely missed it. And I wonder, 
in our plucking this verse from its context and slapping it on different household goods and treating it as some generalized promise of God, I wonder if we don't do the exact same thing. We're looking for some ideal set of circumstances when Jesus is right in front of us. Part of the confusion in this is how we interpret Scripture. Now, this is not to scale, but if you can imagine a sort of timeline from flowers to flowers, and we've got Genesis, creation of the world, and the end, when all shall be made well by God. And so, creation begins right here, fall, sin, Abraham, Israel, things are going well, now things are not going well, Assyrians take over, Babylonians take over, the kingdom is divided, and then we get to the prophets. So Jeremiah 29, 11 is right here. And then we sort of move on, there's the prophetic hope, prophetic hope, we enter the first century, baby is born, Jesus' ministry right here, and then through Jesus to the end. So us, Houston, Texas, 2017, We're somewhere in here, after Jesus' ministry, before the end. And now, let me preface. God can use any scripture he wants to use to say anything he wants to say. And I don't want to box God in. And in fact, I think we can all look back at times in our life where God has used a word from scripture to speak something very personal and very unique to us. And it may have nothing to do with what the immediate context of that verse is. And what I hope you don't hear from me is that that if that has happened for you, and it likely has, it's happened numerous times for me, that that's demeaned or meaningless. No, 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 absolutely. But perhaps it's more helpful to think of that as unique and the exception to the rule and not the rule. Rather, uh, We have to, perhaps as a rule, we have to interpret Scripture through the rest of Scripture. What we cannot do, as a rule, now sometimes unique things happen, but as a rule, what we can't do is take Jeremiah 29, 11, lift it up and go, whoop, skipping you, skipping you, skipping you, skipping you, boom, now it's in my life. Because what that does is number one, pretend that Jeremiah wrote that to us and that nothing has happened since then. And meanwhile, so that skips over centuries. uh, 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 and And we skip over the person and work of Jesus Christ. A better way, and not just for this passage, but for many Old Testament passages, is to filter it through the rest of the story. Filter it through the New Testament. Filter it through Jesus and then let it get to you. And when we do that, for Jeremiah 29, 11, we begin to have a clearer view of what's in mind. There's a curious loaded term in the Hebrew, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for shalom. Now, that's peace in the most comprehensive sense, wholeness, rightness, nothing less than God's restoration. And that word shows up frequently in the Old Testament, but Isaiah uses it. Perhaps you're vaguely familiar with it in chapter 9, verse 6, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince 
of shalom. Hmm. And when we zoom out a bit from Jeremiah, if we back up a bit from 29 and extend it to the rest of the book, we realize that 29.11 is a part of a much larger promise. In chapter 23, God speaks through Jeremiah of being the great shepherd, of recreating his people, and of raising up a king to act justly and righteously. And later in chapter 31, where far from some sort of take two, I'll just... Uh, The new covenant, I'll just write it better this time. No, the new covenant will altogether transcend the old by putting my law within them, and on their heart I will write it. I will be their God, they shall be my people, and later on, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin, I will remember no more. All of that is the shalom, hope, and future promised of Jeremiah 29, 11. And how does any of it come to be? Where does any of that show up? It doesn't come from a new status. It doesn't come from political power. It doesn't come from new wealth. It doesn't come from more happiness. It doesn't come from God getting the right guys in charge. All of these evidences that were being looked for. The great shepherd, recreation, born anew, the coming of the king, the giving of the spirit, transformation of God's people, a cosmic act of forgiveness. All of that is in Jesus Christ. God's promise was not for circumstantial favor. It was a promise for a living, breathing, saving, serving, reconciling, redeeming, reigning, loving, grace-giving, sin-defeating, death-triumphing, new life-giving, hope for the world, Jesus Christ. God said he would pursue them. How did he do it? Jesus. He said he would deliver them. How did he do it? Jesus. He said he would forgive them. How did he do it? Jesus. He said he would be found by them. How did he do it? Jesus. He said he would reconstitute them. How did he do it? Jesus. He said he would give them peace. He said he would give them hope. He said he would give them a future. How did he do any of it? Jesus. It's no different for us. It's no different for you, for me. For Jeremiah 29, 11 to be meaningful, don't place it on some timeless shelf where you can choose, depending on your current need, when and where you'd like to take it, take it and sprinkle it on your life. If you want this verse to be meaning, meaningful to you, then look no further, look no further than Jesus of Nazareth. And don't, don't seek what Jesus can do for you. Seek Jesus. Not ideas about him, not doctrine about him, him. The person who is alive and Lord of the universe, reigning at the right hand of the Father. Surrender and submit your future your fears, your needs, your worries, your emptiness. Give them all, not to how you sort of strategize God could reorder your circumstances to fix things. Would they anyway? Surrender and submit yourself not to some generalized hope, but to an embodied hope. Surrender and submit your life to Jesus, come what may, because he's the only sure thing there is.
But be warned. Count the cost, as Jesus said, because indeed the promises of God are rock solid in Him. Paul says in 2 Corinthians, all God's promises find their yes in Him, but they confound the wisdom of this world. Is there shalom in Jesus, peace, wholeness? You better believe it. Hope and a future can bet your life on it. Indeed, you'll have to. But it won't look like the world's definitions of such. Because Jesus invites, yea, commands us to give, to humble, to serve, to lose, and to die. But it's only in Jesus where giving is receiving, where humbling is exalting, where serving is leading, where losing is finding, and where dying is living. That is peace. That is hope. That's a future worth dying and living for. So if you want to write something on coffee cups, write Jesus. You want to paint something on your wall, paint Jesus. You want to embroider something on a blanket, embroider Jesus. You want to decal something on your water bottle, decal Jesus. Want to script something on a baby crib, script Jesus. You want to bank your life on when peace seems impossible, hope seems dim, and a future is cloudy, bank on Jesus, only Jesus. Jesus.